One of the things I've seen is, is God's, for whatever reason, I don't know why, but God's given me the opportunity to do those things a few times in my life. Uh, I've been in the Amazon rainforest and I had an opportunity to go to the Philippines, now to Africa, went to Russia, all doing the same kind of things. And you find, I find the same reality everywhere I go. <clears throat> no matter how far away it is or what's going on, kids are the same everywhere. It didn't matter if I handed my iPhone to a kid in Russia or a kid in Africa. They figure out how to take a picture and then look at the picture and laugh. <laughs> Every place I've been. And one of the things I'm, I'm, uh, I'm challenged by when, when I just consider that is the fact that mankind all around the globe is in a struggle for relevance. Uh, every man, woman, child, somewhere along their life, they want to be relevant. They want to be able to say, uh, I was here for a reason. And I left something behind that is going to last. That's why you can go to Corinth, the ancient city of Corinth, and find in the stone streets the name Erastus carved in the stone. Because Erastus thought, that's one way my name will last. Or you can go to the Marshall Islands, to to one of the areas that was used by the Japanese to, to torture and kill captured soldiers during World War II. And you can look on the walls there still, in the buildings that are there, and see their names scratched into the concrete cell. Nine Marines. Because they want their life to have meant something, to have left something behind that says, I was here and I mattered. And the problem is most of us spend our life doing that, chasing that concept for things that won't last. A little graffiti 2,000 years later, but what do you know about Erastus? Except for what Paul mentions in the book of Romans at the end. What do we know about the Christians that were down beneath Rome in the catacombs that, that scratched their names down there when they were hiding from the persecution that was going on in Rome? We're in a struggle for relevance, a desire to be part of a bigger story. And when you find yourself in a place where you are uh, without hope of that happening. Everybody around the world does the same thing. They find a way to escape. Whether it's in drugs or alcohol. And you can drive through the villages of Africa and look at these people in their, in their huts, sitting in the dirt, covered with dust, and see the loss of hope in their eyes. That my life is not ever going to matter. And all I'm living for is the next meal. And whether it was in Africa there uh, near the jungle in Malawi, or whether it was in the jungle in Peru, or whether it was in the Philippines in a dump where kids are digging through the filth up to their knees for what they're, how they're going to eat that day, doesn't matter. It's the same everywhere. I've never gone someplace in terms of missions and haven't felt like I could stay here forever. The problems are so big. But the unique thing when we look at that desire of men, 
is that we have the answer for how to be part of the bigger story. For how to have eternal significance. That every one of us is gifted with one life. And we get to live that life in order to make a mark eternally. And every one of us will have one moment to stand before the King of Kings. One chance to hear what will last forever. Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Great is your reward. Because the things that we've done for Jesus Christ, they're eternal. How big my bank account was, how many houses I had, how many head of cattle I had, what I what went through in my life, even the, the people I was able to feed and clothe. It doesn't have eternal consequences. It doesn't have an eternal significance. But, but what I've done for Christ, turning the light of hope on in somebody's eyes to say, you, you mean my life doesn't just... Uh, uh, there's, there's some... Being outside of me that cares about me, I'm just sitting in the dirt. I'm never going to have nothing. I'm just digging for food in the dump. I'm never going to have nothing. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, a being, God Almighty, that cares. And here's the part that might mess with your noodle. He puts you in that place for you. In the dust of the hut. Or the grime of the dump. And if I go there and try to rescue them, I ruin them. If I go there and hand them money, I turn them into beggars. It's no big deal. I could walk up to those guys and hand them enough money, more money than they can make in a month. And I don't make a lot of money. But in Africa, it would have been easy. And all I would have accomplished was to mess them up. Or I can allow God to have His perfect work in their life as they see and recognize and know the power of God moving and working on them. And I can watch God turn Him into something amazing. So in the middle of this village, dust everywhere and dirt all over the place, no concrete floor, no wood floor. <clears throat> Everybody's living in the clay. The house is made out of mud. The thatched roof. And I can walk into a church filled with people praising God. And I can't understand a thing they're saying. But I can enter right into worship with them. Because their life is eternally significant. Because the God of the universe is glorified as they praise Him right where they're at. That's amazing. And as we look at the scripture this morning and as as we prepare for what God has for us, the, the challenge to me is, are we wasting our time? Because when we go through the story of Jesus, what we see over and over again is a religious establishment that missed it. Why do you think Jesus allowed that to be a part of the gospel? You know, he could have, he could have orchestrated it so that wasn't the issue. But the issue was, there was a religious establishment that was missing the overarching work of God. And they couldn't get it. They became hard and, and, and impliable, not flexible at all, not open at all to, to the things that God was doing. And so the new wine that Christ is trying to pour into their life is built on the ground.
So how do we, as we look and we say, is, is what I'm doing more an example of the scribe and the Pharisee and the religious establishment that didn't get it? Or is what I'm doing more like Christ? And that ought to challenge us. Because if our goal isn't to follow Christ and be like Christ and to, and to go where He goes and to love who He loves and to be who He is, and that's not our goal, then really, <laughs> we're wasting our time. In Isaiah chapter 55, love this scripture. I could probably teach on this. I heard of a guy one time who uh, taught on John 3.16 every single week for 30 years. I guess John 3.16 was his favorite verse. And there's a lot of stuff in John 3.16 for sure. If I have one of those, it's Isaiah 55. I, I love Isaiah 55. And I'm only going to look at the first two verses because I think it's, it's uh, relevant to what we're talking about this morning. He says, Ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Immediately what leaps out to me is, you know, how much money we have doesn't matter. The money that we have in America is probably a bigger hindrance than a help. It works harder to keep us away from the things that God wants to do in our life than it does to to bring us to the things that God wants to do in our life. He says, come to me, all you who are thirsty, and I will give you drink. Isn't that what Jesus said? And when we look at Isaiah 55, doesn't it look the same? Ho, everyone who thirsts. Come, come to the waters. That, that word is it, the abundant waters. You who have no money, come by and eat. Yes, come by wine. Wine and throughout Old Testament scriptures is a sign of joy. So he's saying, come and, and buy joy and milk, which is, a, which is a picture of sustenance, that which keeps the body alive. So, so not only that you live, but you, that you have a joyful life. Didn't Jesus say, I've come to give you life and life how? More abundant, right? I'm going to give you an abundant life. That our experience, because here in Isaiah 55, he's saying the same thing. Come, buy, take this joy, take this sustenance. But it doesn't really cost any money, right? Without money, without price. Free significance to a life surrendered to Jesus Christ. Following and worshiping God Almighty. And then he says this, why do you spend money for what is not bread? In other words, why do you spend money on that which will not satisfy you? Or your wages on those things which will not satisfy? Listen carefully to me and eat what is good. Let your life have eternal significance. Eat what is good. Do what God wants out of your life. To be who God wants you to be in your life. Don't live for all those other things that we, that we clamor for. That are temporal. That have no eternal significance. But rather, eat what is good and let your soul delight itself in abundance. Man, that's... Exactly the kind of things Jesus came to tell us about, to share with us, to show us. God promises us a life lived for ourselves will be wasted. And a life lived for Him will have significance. Jesus said it over and over again. Every gospel is 
wrought with scriptures that go like this. But John 12, 25 says this, He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. And we look at that sometimes when we, when we separate ourselves from 2,000 years of, of idiom, we don't understand what's going on. So let me, let me hopefully help it mean something to you. In the Hebrew mindset, the, the words love and hate really mean what you choose and don't choose. To not choose something was to hate it. To choose something was to love it. So what he's saying is if you choose this life here, it's wasted. But if you choose a life for Christ, it has eternal significance. It lasts. The thing that... that that we see around the world people clamoring for is, is found in that place. And so when we look through the Gospels, we see Jesus showing us how to live a life that leaves goodness and mercy in its wake. Psalm 23, right? Remember the end of Psalm 23? And I will... A goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So what's following the, the, the good shepherd? What's following the psalmist? Goodness and mercy, follow me. It's in my wake. When I go, that's what's left behind. Goodness and mercy. We look at the life of Jesus Christ and we see goodness and mercy in His wake. A life that is given away to the will of the Father. And I want you to remember this very significant point. The life Jesus Christ gave away to the will of the Father was to death. It was not pleasant. It wasn't happy. It wasn't fraught with good stuff. It doesn't mean there wasn't good moments in the life of Christ. But He came to be the suffering servant, spoken of by Isaiah 53 and 54, and ultimately in Isaiah 55. He came to do the will of the Father, and it was going to cost Him. But if you want to talk about eternal relevance, man, History Channel and CNN can't even leave Jesus alone. CNN's doing a, a thing, a search for Jesus. Every time they do that, that kind of show, it, it makes my skin crawl a little bit. <clears throat> They're talking about um, what's known as uh, the pseudopagraphia, uh, which is extra-biblical books that, that show up on the scene 5th, 6th, 7th century. So that's 7 centuries after Christ. And they're using them. Meanwhile, the Gospel of Mark is before the first century. Jesus died around 29 to 32 AD. And the Gospel of Mark, the the copies that we have of the Gospel of Mark, date right around 60. Wouldn't it make more sense to use something close? But wow, for whatever reason, History Channel and CNN got to find a spurious book that pretends to be written by somebody else that showed up eight, nine hundred years later and use it as authoritative. I can only imagine how great the show is going to be. But, here we have Jesus Christ. You guys have all heard it. Someone who never left the country of his birth. A small, insignificant place in the dirt. And we set our calendars by him. In fact, people don't like it, so they change the, what, what that all means, right? You guys have all seen that BCE and CE instead of BC and AD. 
<coughs> no, you don't know what I'm talking about. Before common error, common error, they do that instead of anno domini, which is in the time of our Lord. But nonetheless, we see significance, right, from, from, from a life. Now, Jesus is God Almighty, but before you look at him and you say, well, he's God, of course he's able to have this significance. I want you to realize that according to, to Philippians chapter 2, he, he emptied himself, the great kenosis, he, he, he set aside um, his divine power and he functioned just as a man filled with the Holy Spirit would. He didn't stop being God. He's still God. We'll talk about that some today and and, and on as we work our way through the, the Gospel of Mark. But as we, as we do that and as we look at it, what we see is an example that we're supposed to follow. Because Jesus, everyone that He came to and He called, what did He say to them? Come and follow Me, right? Come and follow Me. Come and follow Me. Come and follow Me. Why does He say that? Just <clears throat> for like a cute saying? Or because He actually wants us to follow the example... That he lays out for us. So as we look at the scripture, if I don't get going, we're never going to get nothing done. So, <clears throat> Mark chapter 2 verse 15. Now it happened, as he was dining in Levi's house, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many, and then this phrase, and they followed him. And that indicates a radical change in their life. Tax collectors and sinners who nobody else had time for. The religious establishment had no time for those people. Rabbis regularly taught through the Mishnah and the Babylonian Talmud that they shouldn't have anything to do with sinners and tax collectors and people who don't got their lives all straightened out. But Jesus, that's who He went to. And they followed Him. And they followed Him. They they saw the example of Christ. Nothing in the Scriptures tells us that He stood before Him and preached about all the things they were doing wrong. What he did was, he just, he just is standing before them. Holiness, incarnate. And they see his mannerisms and his lifestyle and the things that he's doing. And they want to follow him. And as soon as it occurs, we talked about it a couple of weeks ago, he makes the religious establishment angry. Right? Look what it says. It says that when the scribes and Pharisees saw him eating with tax collectors and sinners, <clears throat> they said to his disciples, How is it that he eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's a couple of interesting things here, but, uh, but a couple of things that we see is, first, it reveals a, a problem with uh, evangelism. And the problem with evangelism is the church gets it backwards. If we look at 1 Corinthians um, chapter 5, verse 9, Paul is, is writing to the church at Corinth, and listen to what he says. He says, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Now he's going to tell you what he means. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. He's not saying, I don't want you to, <clears throat> to, to, to exist in the world. He's saying, I don't want you to have anything to do with sexually immoral people. And then he makes a distinction. He makes a distinction between the church and the world. And the distinction is backwards from the way most of us think. <clears throat> 
He says, but now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother. Who's he talking about? Where does judgment begin? In the world? Well, why do we spend so much time preaching to them what's all screwed up in their life? We should expect their lives to be screwed up. They don't know Jesus. Judgment begins in the house of God. You call yourself a brother, you should not live in a sexually immoral lifestyle, period. And if you call yourself a brother and you do live in that, the scripture says you're not supposed to have anything to do with him. That the judgment begins there. But what happens oftentimes is it begins as we turn our voices toward the lost. Well, before you expect the lost to be clean, they got to know Jesus Christ. Because before you could ever be the man or woman God wants you to be, you have to have Jesus Christ living in you, His Holy Spirit empowering you to live the life required of you. you Apart from that, you can't do it. We get it backwards. That's how the Pharisees were. What's Jesus doing with those sinners? Those tax collectors? In other places, He's going to be called a wine-bibber and a a whoremonger. That should tell you the kind of people He was hanging out with. But He wasn't there to tell them what they were doing was okay. He was there to say to them, Follow Me. Let me show you how to have eternal significance instead of chasing temporal satisfaction that that, that never satisfies. So we see a problem in the the attitude of of evangelism. We don't want to be like that. Judgment begins in the house of God. If the church would turn its its, uh, judging to itself, we'd be a lot better off. And it would turn to the people outside who don't know Christ and, and just reveal Christ to them. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. So we see that, that sometimes it's possible to be like the Pharisees where we get it backwards and we're judging the world. Hey, that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong and that's wrong. I'm reminded of that song, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. You know, I, I really don't like it. The song. Maybe because it offends me. <laughs> I don't know. But the concept of that, of that song is readily seen in the Gospels. And the understanding, it's important for us to grasp. Jesus wasn't going to the sinners and telling them their life was okay. And he wasn't compromising his, his walk as the man who fully followed God and responded to the Holy Spirit utterly and completely and totally. None of those things were, were lost, man. <clears throat> he was that perfect example. But his judgment was reserved for the religious establishment. Because if we call ourselves brothers, now I should say, my life's got to be different. Otherwise, I'm an old wineskin. Otherwise, I'm old and brittle and I'm going to break. It also shows us the purpose of Christ. Look at the purpose. He said, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I did not come for those who are well, but for the sick. It's it's. Look at it. It's backwards. What do you do when you're sick? You call the doctor. But it's not the sick calling the doctor. Who's, who's the doctor's calling the sick? The doctor's calling the sick. 
to help the sick, to show the sick the area where they can have eternal significance, where they can turn away from the temporal and the things that don't satisfy and the, and the cotton candy. You live on cotton candy? Cotton candy tastes good for like 10 seconds. But if all you're eating is cotton candy, you're never full. You just feel lousy. Is there a better description of a life lived to, for the satisfaction in the world the, the, that the lost lived than that? Jesus, He saw the sick and He reached out to them to show them that their life could have eternal significance and they followed Him. That means they changed. They weren't still on the corner taking taxes. If they're following Jesus, He's moving on. He don't stand still. So their lives were being affected. They were being changed. In Luke 19.10 it says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. In Matthew 18.11 it says, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. And you can find a hundred... Okay, that's an exaggeration. You can find a lot of verses that say the exact same thing. He came to save the lost. But what we discover is Jesus' identification with sinners leads to a division between Himself and the religious establishment. Because Jesus wanted to reach out to the dirty. The religious establishment couldn't understand. Look what, look what we see there in, in verse 18. The disciples of John and the, and the Pharisees were fasting. And they came and said to him, Why didn't the disciples of John and the Pharisees fast? But your disciples don't fast. So, I want you to get the picture, because I don't want you to miss the picture. Jesus is sitting down having a feast with sinners. They're all gorging on food. Whatever they had, I don't know, a bunch of pita, bread, and and squashed garbanzo beans. What do they call that? Hummus. But... But they're, they're eating that stuff. They're having, that's what they ate. And they're having a great time. And there's joy. And there's happiness. And, and all of a sudden, I just want you to picture it. The religious establishment comes up and they're like, uh, excuse us, we're fasting. You get the concept? We're, we're going through a religious ritual that makes us better. How come you don't do that? I'm fasting. How come you're not fasting? How come your disciples aren't doing those things? Here's what we discover when we look at uh, the, the Didache, which is the teaching of the Twelve. It says that the Pharisees had a, a concept where they feast two times a day. Jesus alludes to it in Luke 18, uh, in, uh, Luke 18 uh, 11 and 12. Remember when Jesus talks about the two guys praying? The Pharisee went down to pray and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. You guys know what I'm talking about? I'm not like the extortioners or unjust adulterers or even that tax collector because I fast twice a week. So they fasted on the second and the fifth day of the week. That was their tradition. And they were very proud of their religious ritual. And so they're looking at Jesus eating with all these sinners and they're like, oh, we thought this guy was really something, but we're fasting and he's eating. So you see Jesus' identification with sinners, and and Jesus is going to say, man, where the Son of Man is, there's joy. Look, we will fast now, and we're going to see that. That's part of what Jesus said was going to happen. But there's a day coming where we're not fasting no more. 
And the sun's not going to burn our skin, and the, the life is not going to be like it has been. That, that day is coming. But look what, look what Jesus said. He said in verse 19, Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then, in those days, they will fast. So I want you to get the idea. Jesus is saying, man, this is like a wedding, dude. The wedding, the Messiah is here, and the friends of the bridegroom never fasted. You never had a wedding. Weddings lasted in those days seven days. A wedding was seven days long. And if those same Pharisees who were saying, Oh, we're fasting, how come you guys are eating? If they were at a wedding feast, they didn't fast. Because part of their, part of their ceremonial law said, You never fasted at a wedding. It's a time of joy. And since it's a time of joy, you don't fast. Fasting is a, is a day of affliction. The affliction of your own soul to... to Bring yourself down. Humble yourself before the Lord. And so, he's saying, look, I'm here. I'm here. And because I'm here, there's joy. And all those people that prior to Christ were sitting in the dirt with no significance and no hope, who lived their life looking for some type of satisfaction and something they could steal or some way they could sell their body or sell themselves or sell their soul, now find in Christ a reason to have hope and joy and significance. And here comes the religious establishment. Uh, I don't know if you're wearing the right clothes. Or you got the right kind of shoe on. I went to this, this church one time in Buell and the preacher was wearing flip-flops. I mean, how is that even possible? <laughs> if it gets any warmer, you're going to see the flip-flops come out early this year. <clears throat> the religious establishment was always there to try to stop the joy. What, where did that joy come from? It wasn't from their sin. It was, from, it was from experiencing the relationship with Christ. So what's Jesus saying? Look, He's telling don't miss it. He's telling us that, that the way to Him is not through religious ritual, but the way to Him is to be joyfully present in His presence. To be with Him. That, He's talking relational, right? He's not talking about religion. We talk about that kind of stuff all the time, but we see Jesus laying it out for us right here in Scripture. In fact, John the Baptist even uses the same phrasing in John chapter 3 to talk about the fact that he is a friend of the bridegroom. And, and, and his heart is rejoicing. Remember when, as Jesus is increasing, John's saying, he must increase and I must... Yeah, he's saying, I'm not going to be bummed about it because, man, I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. Rejoicing in the presence of the Messiah. But then Jesus speaks of the future. He says, the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away. That word, taken away, not because of the Greek word, but because of the context, is talking about a violent taking. What's he talking about when he says, the bridegroom's going to be taken away? Yeah, they're going to crucify him. They're going to kill him. Those same guys who are there, the religious establishment, who are complaining about what he's doing and how he's doing it, about giving hope to the hopeless. 
They're saying, oh, <clears throat> we thought you were for real, but you're not doing the right things. You're not wearing the right clothes. You're not doing the right ritual. Those are the guys. He says, the bridegroom's going to be taken away, and when he is, there will be sorrow. Now the bridegroom's taken away both in the cross, and then he's resurrected, and, he, and we see him again. We're getting ready to celebrate uh, Easter as we celebrate the, the Lord's uh, resurrection, resurrection day. And we, we look at the great joy of that day, but then there was another day of sorrow, right? <clears throat> A few days later, he ascends into heaven. But when he ascended into heaven, what did he say? Yeah, he said, hey man, I'm going and I'm setting up a a place for you, but what? I'm coming back. And you got a job to do. Go to the hopeless. Go to the sinner. Go to the broken. And give them hope. Through a relationship. Not a religion. With Jesus Christ. Where their life changes and they find significance now jesus gives them two examples in the parables look at it verse 21 and 22 he says no one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment or else the new piece pulls away from the old and the tear is made worse he's talking about two things that cannot go together That's the point. A parable is designed, the concept when we come to a parable, is to see one main truth. If we start making a parable tell us 50 different things, we're probably pushing the parable a little hard. You guys know, you guys all heard of Aesop's fables, right? And when you come to the end of Aesop's fable, there's a moral to the story, right? And the moral of the story, there's there's one concept, that's right, we don't want to make too much out of it all. It's the same thing when we come to a parable. So we have two things that don't go together. If you put them together, they tear apart. The religious establishment and the gospel of Jesus Christ and your old life and the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't go together. People try to add Jesus to their life. That don't work. And that's not salvific. That's not salvation. If you add Jesus to your life, that ain't, that ain't the deal. That ain't the deal where you gave yourself away. Jesus wants all of you or you haven't given any of you. There's no part. There's no piece. There's no little bit. It's all or nothing. Which of us gets married and we're okay? You know, I, I want to get married. And, and, and so uh, I tell Kathy, I'll, I'll be your husband Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Does that sound like a great deal to you ladies? Yeah, you're like, oh, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of in my life. But that's exactly the kind of relationship some people have with Jesus Christ. I'll follow you on Sunday. If that's your relationship with Christ, you don't have one. You don't have a relationship if that's the relationship. All or none. He wants it all. Lock, stock, and barrel. Two things that don't go together. He gives us another example. Verse 22. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Or else the new wine bursts the wineskin. The wine is spilt. And the wineskins are ruined. 
But new wine must be put into new wineskins. Look, the traditions and the rituals of the religious establishment would not, could not exist together with what Jesus was bringing. That's why Christianity would not become a sect of Judaism. If it, otherwise, it could have been a sect of Judaism. Add Christ now to Judaism, and you have a fulfillment of everything, and, and we'll go on. But that didn't happen. Because the old wineskins couldn't hold the new wine. They're no longer flexible. So, as the new wine goes through the fermentation process, and it would cause the old wineskins to swell... They burst, and everything comes out. It's a new thing. It's a new work. Jesus is telling these guys, He's saying to these guys, Look, i got new wine for you. But if you're going to cling to all those old concepts, you're going to cling to your rituals, not even rituals that God gave them, just their own rituals, your traditions, you're never going to take the new wine and all the stuff that I've come to give you. What's, remember I told you wine spoke of something. Joy, right? Joy. Taking to the hopeless and giving them joy. This joy that Jesus had to give them, they couldn't receive. Because they're so hardened in their way. So hard in their way. I don't want to be that religious establishment. A long time ago when I was going through Bible college, I had a professor tell me the... I don't remember, I never take the time to actually count the words. But I think it was something like the seven words of a dying church. We've never done it that way before. Well, good! Because if it's the same way you've been doing it all along, it's probably not a new move of the Holy Spirit. And as long as it's lined out in the Scripture and we see it on the page of Scripture, then let's go! Let's be and do Do the work that Jesus has called the church to. But the church here, the church (coughs) has gotten crusty. I do not want to be a crusty Christian. I don't really want to be a crusty anything. (laughs) But I definitely don't want to be a crusty Christian who's, who's inflexible and uncaring about the people without hope. I think we're in Africa maybe 20 minutes before Kathy and I are crying like babies. I gotta, I gotta do my best to be tough because when I, I'm hoping by Wednesday I can talk about it without bawling. But it's incredible. The hopelessness. And the amount of hopelessness. And then the other side of that, you have the answer. That's pretty incredible. The opportunities that that presents. But we don't want to be crusty like those guys. We don't want to be hard like those guys. We want to be able to be flexible. So then we see two more stories. We're going to make it. Two more stories. We work our way through. All of these scriptures fit together. They're all doing the same thing. Jesus partying with the sinners. And the guys coming alongside and saying, Why aren't you fasting following our rituals? Jesus telling them the story of the, the old wine skins. And Jesus telling them... Uh, uh, what was the other one? Cloth. Thanks. The cloth. I was like, wow, there was two of them. <laughs> <laughs> 
One, two. <laughs> Tell him about the cloth, the two things that can't go together. And then he, he goes on to another situation. Look at it. He says in verse 23, Now it happened as they went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do you do what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? Now in Exodus 34, 21, it says, Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time or in harvest time you shall rest. So they're walking through, and in the Mishnah, in the Talmud, in the rules of the religious system of that day, they had (coughs) uh, um, 39 things that you could not do on the Sabbath. I'm going to read them to you right straight out of the Mishnah. Sowing, Plowing, reaping, binding into sheaves, threshing, winnowing, fruit cleaning, grinding, sifting, kneading, baking, wool shearing, bleaching, combing, dyeing, spinning, warping, making two spindle trees. Apparently you can make one. Weaving two threads, (coughs) separating two threads in the warp, tying a knot. So that's why they wear sandals. Untying a knot, sewing on with two stitches. So apparently you could sew on with one stitch. Tearing in order to sew together with two stitches. Hunting deer. Slaughtering the same. Skinning them. Salting them. Preparing the hide. Scraping the hair off. Cutting it. Writing two letters. Uh, two, not like writing two letters like Dear John. No. Writing two letters like A, B. You couldn't write two letters. Two single letters. Or erasing in order that you might write two letters. Building, demolishing, in order to rebuild, kindling, extinguishing a fire. You are not allowed to put out a fire. Put your house on fire. Mm. Hammering, transferring from one place to another. These are the principal acts of labors, 40 less one. Now there's like six more pages that describe and define each one of those. So this is, they come, the, the disciples, what they did, they're walking through wheat field, they grab a, a head, they, they <clears throat> roll it in their hands, blow away the chaff, pop the, the wheat in their mouth, and they just keep going on. Well, what's also talked about in Deuteronomy, that, that that was lawful, but listen to Jesus' answer in verse 25, but He said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need in Hungary? He and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with him. What was the condition of David and his men? They were in need. They were hungry. They were hungry. So the answer of Jesus is is twofold. First, he shows evidence. Look, David... (laughs) did something far worse than what what you're talking about. And the reason he did it is because human need takes precedence over ceremonial law. In other words, if your house is burning, by all means, extinguish it. Human need takes precedent over ceremonial law. We read about it in 1 Samuel 21.6. It says, So the priest gave him the holy bread. For there was no bread there but the showbread, which had been taken from before the Lord in order to put hot bread in its place on the day when it had been taken away. So under the law, it was only available for the priests. But David's hunger superseded the ceremonial law. And the word of God, after David did it, did not rebuke David for what he did. 
God was silent. When God's silent, we should learn to be silent too. Not try to make up something we think should fit. So God's silent. God doesn't, God doesn't push the, 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 the envelope. He doesn't, he doesn't push beyond it. And so, what does it say to the Pharisees? Human need supersedes ceremonial law. The disciples are hungry. They're not breaking the Sabbath. And Jesus is going to tell them another reason why. Look at the next verse. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was created for man's blessing, not to become an effort for man to try to turn it into a ritual to please God. The Sabbath was created for man and his blessing, not to be turned into a ritual to please God. That's what Jesus is saying. Man, the Sabbath was made for man, not the other way around. And then, listen to what he says. Therefore, the Son of Man, which is a messianic title, Messiah, the Christ, is the Lord of the Sabbath. Well, you better just sit down and think about what that means. Jesus is saying to the Pharisees who were claiming by giving Him grief about what the disciples were doing, that they were the Lord of the Sabbath. That they're the guys who tell you what you can do, what you can't do, how you can do it, why you should do it. So they're the lords of the Sabbath. But Jesus said, huh? The Son of Man, the Messiah, the Word incarnate. I am the Lord of the Sabbath. I am the one who will define what the Sabbath is. In fact, later on, Jesus is going to say that He is my Sabbath rest. And when I come to Christ, I fulfill the Sabbath. I find rest. In Him. That's why of all the commandments that are repeated throughout the New Testament, to honor the Sabbath day is not repeated. Why? Because the Sabbath day is fulfilled for the Gentile in a relationship with Jesus Christ. The only ones who are called biblically to fulfill the Sabbath day throughout Scripture are the Jews. Because God said, I make this ordinance between you and me forever. That's a long time. So they are instructed to keep it. But Jesus Christ becomes a fulfillment. So a completed Jew, someone who comes to faith in Jesus Christ, set aside, he enters into his rest in Jesus Christ. So he's talking about this authority that he has. He says, I have authority to define the Sabbath day. That's an amazing statement. I have the authority to define what happens on the Sabbath. There's really one guy who has that kind of authority. Exousa in the Greek. That's God. And in this particular section for the Hebrew, it was a very clear declaration that I am God in the flesh. It's not going to be the last one. Jesus is going to give some even more clear, like by saying, I am God in the flesh. So he's he's declaring, I am the authority over the Sabbath day. I am the authority. And then in in, in Mark 3, 1 through 6, he proves it. He proves it. So he's having this discussion, the, 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 the impliable, the, the hardened hearted religious institutions that can't bend and can't flex and can't consider. I'm not talking about going against what God's word says. I'm just talking about going against their own tradition. Oh, he can't change our tradition. Well, look what happens in, in, in Mark 3, verse 1. So he entered the synagogue, synagogue again. So it's another Sabbath day, right? 
And there was a man there with a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might, what's that phrase? Accuse him. Have you ever heard of a dumber thing in your life? Now we're all uh, lifting up uh, um, Lexi in prayer, right? For, for The little girl was in the accident and, and who is... Actually, she's starting to get some movement. There's some killer video of her uh, on Facebook. I love seeing the updates and, and hopefully we're all praying for her. But you know, it wouldn't matter what day... If Jesus walked into her room and healed her, nobody's going to accuse Jesus. Right? right? They would all just be stoked. Thank you, ma'am. They, they'd all just be excited. But here, they're bringing a guy with a withered hand. Just another hopeless guy. You know, with the withered hand, he couldn't go to the temple. He couldn't offer sacrifice. He couldn't fulfill any ritual observance of their religion. So they take this hopeless guy, they bring him into the synagogue for the sole purpose of trying to find a reason to kill Jesus. On the Sabbath day. We'll see if he's Lord of the Sabbath. Let's see what he tries to do. So they set the challenge. They brought him in to see if he would heal. Verse 3, And he said to the man who had the withered hand, Step forward. Basically, come here. Then he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or evil? To save a life or to kill. The next part of the verse says they wouldn't answer him. Why? Because if they said it's lawful to do good, then they wouldn't be able to accuse Jesus. Would they? They're trapped. So they give no response. According to the Word of God, God the Word is standing before him right now. John 1, 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Right? That's Jesus Christ. God the Word. So God, the, the incarnation of the actual f- Word of God is standing there in front of them telling them what is lawful for the Sabbath. It's lawful to do good. It's not lawful to do evil. It's lawful to heal. It's not lawful to kill. What are they going to do? On the Sabbath day, they're going to develop a plot to kill Jesus. It's amazing when you look at the, how the whole story falls together. They kept silent. They wouldn't answer. To heal, that's to save a life. Not to heal, that's to kill. Verse 5, And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their heart, you hear him describing them like those old wineskins, like the, like the shrunken cloth. He said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored as whole as the other. Now how does anybody heal? The Pharisees knew this too. How does anybody heal? Only God can heal. Only God can heal. When God chooses to use human instruments, He, he uses human instruments. But the, the Pharisee and the scribe had a very clear Understanding that God would not do that through a sinner. Remember John chapter 9? When Jesus heals the man born blind? And they say, oh, it couldn't have been Jesus. We know that guy's a sinner. Give glory to God. God's the only one who can heal. And the man says, look, I don't know what you're talking about, but Jesus is a dude who did this to me. That's a Jackie paraphrase. 
So there he is standing on the Sabbath day proving to them it is lawful to do good. It is lawful to heal. And proving to them he's the Christ. That he is the fulfillment of the promise that God spoke all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 verse 16. That the day you've all been looking for has come. That the kingdom of God is near to you. I'm right here before you. But their religious institution, their, their religious concepts would not allow them to see the truth of who Jesus was. Look what happens. He restores it as good as the other. Look at verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians how they might destroy him. You get that, right? That's on the Sabbath day. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So apparently it's okay to plot killing someone on the Sabbath day. That's how ridiculous it is to be confined into these places. So the the issue is, the Pharisees' distortion of real faith, taking real absolute faith in God and, and making it humanly attainable. In other words, you don't need God to be holy. You just need to do these things I'm telling you to do. If you do these things I'm telling you to do, then you can be holy. You don't need God for it. In order to please God, you've got to be holy now. There's a lot of people that have that same view today. Let me just make it really simple. That's impossible. And anybody who says it is possible is lying, and they know they're lying. Because everybody sins. Have you ever sinned the same sin twice? More than twice? Some of you guys are in bad shape. We can't attain the holiness apart from Him. He makes us holy when we surrender ourselves to Him. But the Pharisees had it backwards. Do these things and you'll, you'll achieve this, this holiness. So, when on the Sabbath day the disciples shuck that grain and they, and they eat it, they can't understand why personal human need supersedes their tradition. When Jesus is standing on the Sabbath day in the, in the synagogue and He heals a man with a withered hand who's without hope. Or when Jesus is sitting down eating a meal with a bunch of sinners and bringing joy to them as they experience, maybe for the first time, a real communion with God Almighty. They don't get it. And the wine that Jesus has to give them bursts, spills out on the ground. And they spend their day, rather than receiving, they be excited. But here they're bringing...